The following podcast was produced by Latter-day Radio. For more information, visit latterdayradio.com. Welcome to a brand new podcast, the first for 2022 from Latter-day Radio. Today we are talking about a new book just released by author G.M. Gerard, The Invitation to the Shining City. In 2020, while millions of Americans were mourning about the chaos in the streets and political insults thrown back and forth, the author had turned to binge-watching the new TV series, The Chosen. We have the author here with us now, and I want to ask him a question. Uh, So, Greg, why did you embark on such an ambitious project? That's a real good question, Jen. And it's true, I was engrossed in the series by Dallas Jenkins, captivated even. And I feel the real kinship with the people at the time of Christ as depicted in in this series. People who were under Roman rule, despotic Roman rule. And it, it occurred to me that we today take our freedoms for granted. And that despite the promise of America being the shining city on the hill, as Ronald Reagan mentioned in 1980, Our way of life, even our freedoms, are in peril. We need to remember what we learned in elementary school. Remember that when we memorized the Pledge of Allegiance about being one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all? We seem to have forgotten that. And The Chosen was a catalyst that started me on writing the invitation. And unlike our forebears, like the Pilgrims, the Puritans, or the Pioneers, There is no new world for us to flee to. We can't board a ship or get a wagon or push a handcart. My book, The Invitation to the Shining City, proposes such an exit strategy. Using the theme of John Winthrop's speech to his fellow Puritans while en route to New England on the ship Arabella in 1630, I cite his vision to establish, in his words, a place where We follow the counsel of Micah to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. And for this end, we must be knit together in this work as one man. So, Greg, what's the one overarching question you feel your book poses? Well, I I think it's the question we all have as we look at the world around us. You know, if there were a place, as the Puritan founder of Boston first described it, where the people were of one heart and one mind, lived in righteousness and lift one another's burdens, what would you be willing to pay to go there? That is an intriguing question. So, Greg, how does the story begin? Well, chapter one uh, begins in Israel two years after its establishment in 1948, right on the beach in Caesarea, right below, in fact, Herod's aqueduct. Jonathan Bloom a military attaché with the U.S. Embassy and a veteran of the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials, accepts a strange meeting with a mysterious man named John who has approached him about an intriguing job offer. He is given his invitation. And then, in a surprising turn of events, Jonathan accepts the position, one where he will eventually become the mentor to a young couple, Joey and Dana Kuntz. When they finally give in to a request from the husband's 90-year-old grandmother to take her to a place to rehabilitate in the hot springs at a grand hotel and spa, their world is turned upside down. They discover that Grandma, or Oma as Joey calls her, does more than rehabilitate, and so does everyone else around her. When the couple uh, inquires about the entrance fee, 
They learned that to live there, you have to be invited. They hadn't received their invitation. And to qualify for an invitation, they commit to gather others to join them. But along the way, they encounter opposition in the form of media attacks, charges of embezzlement, even a kidnapping. The real challenge comes from within. To qualify, Joy has to make the same decision that the young prince in the New Testament couldn't make, to sell all that he had and give it to the poor and follow the Savior. The Kuntz's story of opportunity and opposition gives renewed hope to readers in a time of chaos where there is no new world to flee to, where they can't drive a wagon or push a handcart. In the words of the prophet Elisha to his apprentice, as a young man's eyes were opened and he could see legions of angels round about, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And that's something that Joy and Dana Kuntz learn. Yes, the book is fiction, but it reminds people of faith, what God has been telling for generations. As Paul said, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God had prepared for them that love him. So I have a little bit here that we've recorded of the uh, first scene of the book. And if you want to, we can uh, listen to it right now. Let's do it. The Invitation, Chapter 1, Scene 1, read by the author, G.M. Gerard. Jonathan Bloom put his shoes and socks back on. Wedding in the Mediterranean would be more enjoyable if you didn't have to roll up the cuffs on your suit pants and weren't wearing a tie. This is such an odd place for a job interview, the 49-year-old lawyer said to no one in particular as he tied his shoes. He was sitting on history, a block of sandstone, a fragment of the Roman aqueduct at Caesarea, now officially part of the nation of Israel. It was approaching dusk. For nearly ten years, all he had seen was chaos, war, and retribution, and for a brief moment he had found peace. Peace right here on this beach, where Herod the Great had built the aqueduct, looming right over his head. He was a military attaché at the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv. Israel was now a state in its own right, already two years old. Jonathan Bloom was in the Promised Land, when he first set foot in Haifa a year ago, there was a moment when time stood still, a pause, no heavenly choirs, no parting of the sea, rather a calmness that quietly enveloped him. Israel knew him. It welcomed him. For a Jew, he was right where he belonged. Or so he thought. Bloom turned at the sound of footsteps behind him. There was a man approaching. Was he the one? There was a vague familiarity in the man's eyes that transfixed him, bright blue, even in the dusk, brighter than any he had ever seen. They were the color of the sea. Shlami ken malak, the man said. Sorry, I don't speak Hebrew, just some Yiddish. I'm Jonathan Bloom, he said. It's Aramidic. My name is John. Nice to meet you. They shook hands. His were the strong hands of a working man, hands with a history. John had long hair hidden under a headdress that could either be Arab or Israeli, hard to tell, and, and a full black beard. But his most distinguishing feature were the eyes. 
Bloom was a bit shorter and stockier than the stranger, but appeared taller thanks to his halo of dark but receding curly hair. His infectious smile and the gleam in his eyes had served him well, first in courtrooms and in the halls of power and then in the army's judge advocate corps. They seated themselves on facing blocks of stone. Bloom spoke first. I must say I've been intrigued by your request to meet me here in such an unconventional place. You're quite the man of mystery, John smiled. Yes, I've heard that before. Bloom opened his small leather attaché and pulled out a recently typewritten Vita. He handed it to John. Let's talk and walk, John said. It's a beautiful day turning into a beautiful night. He looked over Jonathan's resume as he strode down the strand. So you left the district attorney's office in January 1942 to join the army. And you learned German. Yes, my grandparents often spoke to me in Yiddish, so it wasn't a stretch to learn the language. Came in handy when I interrogated POWs after D-Day, Bloom explained. John handed the resume back to Bloom. The sun was getting lower in the sky and the tide was coming in. The sand was wet and there were now two long sets of footprints behind them. So what exactly are you looking for? What is the position you need filled, Bloom asked. Actually, Jonathan, we are creating a position specifically for you. We need you. As I said, we have been watching you ever since law school. We watched you in Germany, first at the camps, then at the Nuremberg trials, and finally the tribunal in Tokyo. Gruesome business, John said. Yes, gruesome, that's probably the right word. A stone tied around your leg would be another way to describe it. It's so hard to bear, hard to forget. What I experienced rarely leaves my thoughts. It's so unfathomable, so heavy. I'm still looking for ways to lose the stone, the burden, Bloom said with a sigh. Maybe we have a way. So here you are now, distancing yourself from Tokyo on the Third Reich. Maybe someday, distant memories, we hope. We were happy when we heard the new ambassador to Israel needed a military attaché, so we put in a good word for you. You earned your accolades. Who's we? We will get to that. John changed the subject. So you were in country when the Israelis finally sent the Arab armies packing, actually right in the middle of it. Is that right? John asked. Bloom nodded, and John continued. No married, no prospects? No, I'm a widower, but you probably already knew that. John stopped near a large piece of driftwood that appeared to be part of a boat. He looked around, saw that they were alone, then pulled a valise out of his coat, held it for a moment, and then presented it to Bloom. This may come as a surprise, but Jonathan, we are extending you an offer right now. As you will see, it's more than just a job. It has benefits, a generous retirement, and more than a lifetime of service. And also in there is a list of names, a very long list, along with instructions. It provides details about the invitation. The invitation? Bloom asked. Yes, in the envelope. It is our offer and our expectations. If you accept it, be at the Caesarea port Saturday night after Shabbat. Bring your duffel, your suitcases, everything. We'll leave it dark. We're taking a boat ride, and I'll be there to welcome you aboard. Go ahead. You can open it now, Don said. The envelope looked ancient, 
was crafted out of handmade paper and closed tightly with a large wax seal. Jonathan put the other documents, the packet of names and instructions, into his attaché case and set it all down on the sand between his feet. Now he was focused on the gift he had just been given. The sun had just set, but there was still enough light to read the invitation. He ran a finger along the envelope, turned it over, hoping for a clue about the contents. He was tentative, treating it like the Nagamadi papyri. He carefully broke the seal and opened it. When he read what was inside, he felt cemented in the sand, immovable. Is this possible? He turned to the stranger for an explanation, but he was gone, vanished. Jonathan Bloom stared at the footprints in the sand. Two sets led back to the aqueduct where they had first met, but there were no footprints leading away. Where did he go? Then and there, Jonathan Bloom decided to accept his new position. So, Greg, I really want to examine the creative process that you went through to write the story. So how did you come up with it? Actually, I I have to admit it was kind of an eclectic effort. I brought a bunch of different things together, and somehow I clued them together into into one story. I, I mentioned, I believe, that I had watched the movie Midnight in Paris, where Owen Wilson goes back to 1925. I've been thinking a lot about constitutional problems we have in this country in regards to what John Adams said in 17, I think it was 1787, where he said that the Constitution was created for a moral and religious people and is not suited for any other. And in addition to that, if you look at some of the other podcasts we've done and go back, we we have one... Uh, titled No Barren Rock. And it's um, a quote that I found while researching another yet unfinished book about uh, the the, um, 1857 Utah War. And if you're not familiar with our history, um, in 1856, uh, John C. Fremont was the first Republican candidate for president, uh, running under the slogan of running against the so-called twin relics of barbarism, which uh, was slavery and, and polygamy. And because the um, disparate groups of Republicans and Democrats, Northerners and Southerners, needed a common enemy to unite them, the, the Mormons were fair game. And as a result, Johnston's army was sent out to Utah to keep these rebellious Mormons under control. And uh, that was... Uh, communicated to uh, Brigham Young and other church leaders on July the 24th, 1857, exactly 10 years to the date that the Mormons first came into the Great Salt Lake Valley. Brigham Young had made the statement, if they'll give us 10 years, they won't be able to dislodge us from this place. And so the Lord gave them exactly 10 years. The piece that I'm going to attach to this podcast right now it's from an excerpt that we, we broadcast on KLO in 2018. This is Brigham Young's Even a Barren Rock speech, and you'll know what that means when you listen to the whole thing to the end. So listen closely. This is Brigham Young in my own interpretation of what how he may have given this speech to the saints um, a few days after 
they learned about the army that was marching on Zion. We wish strangers to understand that we did not come here out of choice, but we were obliged to go somewhere and here we landed. We considered California or Vancouver Island, but we knew after five years they would chase us out again, so this was the best place we could find. So I said, let us stay in the mountains, and we can raise our own potatoes and eat them. We came here penniless in old wagons, our friends telling us, take all the provisions you can, for you can get no more. Take all the seed grain you can, for you can get none here. We did this, and in addition to all this, we have gathered all the poor we could, and the Lord has planted us in these valleys, promising that he would hide us up for a little season until his wrath and indignation passed over the nations. Will we trust in the Lord? Yes. We made and broke the road from Nauvoo to this place. Some of the time we followed Indian trails. Some of the time we ran by the compass. When we left the Missouri River, we followed the Platte. And we killed rattlesnakes by the cord in some places. And made roads and built bridges until our backs ached. For twelve or thirteen hundred miles, we carried every particle of provision we had when we arrived here. Instead of the 365 pounds of breadstuff, when, when they started from the Missouri River, there was not half of them that, have half, that had half of it. We had to bring our seed grain, our farming utensils, bureaus, secretaries, sideboards, sofas, pianos, large looking glasses, fine chairs, carpets, nice shovels and tongs, and other fine furniture with all the parlor, cook stoves, etc. And we have to bring these things all piled together with some women and children, helter-skelter, topsy-turvy with broken-down horses, oxen with three legs, and cows with one teat. You may say this is burlesque. Well, I mean it as such, for we, comparatively speaking, really came here naked and barefoot. I did not devise the great scheme of the Lord's opening the way to send people to these mountains. I had nothing to do with it. No, we came here by faith, not knowing beforehand whether we would go. We had to have faith to come here. When we met Mr. Bridger on the Big Sandy River, he said to me, Mr. Young, I would give a thousand dollars if I knew an ear of corn would be ripened in the Great Basin. Said I, wait 18 months and I will show you many of them. Did I say this from knowledge? No, it was my faith, because all we heard told us otherwise that the land was sterile, it's cold and frost. But we traveled on, breaking the road through the mountains and building bridges until we arrived here, and then we did everything we could to sustain ourselves. There is not another people on the earth that could have come here and lived. We prayed over the land and dedicated it and the water, air and everything pertaining to them unto the Lord, and the smiles of heaven rested on the land, and it became productive, and today yields us the best of grain, fruit, and vegetables. You inquire if we shall stay in these mountains. I answer yes. As long as we please to do the will of God, our Father in heaven, if we please to turn away from the holy commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ, as ancient Israel did, every man turning to his own way, we shall be scattered and peeled, driven before our enemies, and persecuted until we learn to remember the Lord our God and are willing to walk in his ways. Let us remember. We have been thrown like a stone from a sling, and we have lodged in the godly place where the Lord wants his people to gather. 
If the Lord should say by his revelation, this is the spot, the saints would be satisfied, even if it was a barren rock. So, Brigham Young's speech and the circumstances in which the saints found themselves back at the middle of the 19th century, specifically 1856, 57, 58, when the United States was on the verge of the Civil War, the saints had uh, taken refuge in the mountains. And to me, that was the allegorical place that I wanted to write about in my book. In other words, if there were a place where we could hitch a, an ox wagon or push a handcart to, where we could escape the kinds of moral decay and cultural distress and political decadence that we see before us today, how many Latter-day Saints would be willing to hitch a wagon or push a handcart and escape the kind of world that we're living in? Well, the reality is there is no such uh, undiscovered country, as Brigham noted in his speech. The uh, Saints were thinking about Vancouver Island and for a time even Alaska. And in fact, 10 years later or so, uh, Seward's Folly, uh, the purchase of Alaska uh, what came about because the Russians were afraid the Mormons were going to go and take it over anyway. So in my mind, the Shining City, which is part of the title of my book, is an allegorical place for the city of Zion, a place where we could flee to if we knew how to get there. And since we don't really have a place, nor do we have a means to get there, I created one in my mind, and that became the uh, uh, Salem-like uh, city that is described in my book. So, Greg, is this a book written exclusively for members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? No, in fact, it's a Christian fantasy. Let me put it this way— uh, I don't use LDS scriptures. I don't cite LDS scriptures. I'm talking about the Book of Mormon or the Book of Moses or the Doctrine and Covenants uh, in the book. When you hear the phrase, the people were of one heart, one mind, dwelt in righteousness, and there's no poor among them, you'll know exactly where that comes from. But that aspiration is hardly unique to Latter-day Saints. Christians who read the New Testament carefully will know about such a place. And if they read the Old Testament, they will see indications that the city of Enoch was no more because God took it up. This is not an LDS doctrine. It's in the Old Testament. There's an apocryphal book of Enoch that uh, is actually in other churches' uh, versions of the Bible, for example, the Ethiopian Christian Orthodox Church has 110 books 
our Old Testament and New Testament have 66. So uh, some of these scriptures exist in uh, other places and are read by other people. So the whole idea of fleeing to a place is exactly what John Winthrop talks about and why the Puritans made their pilgrimage to the New World in 1630. And in fact, it was John Winthrop who makes that mention of the shining city on the hill. That city turned out to be Boston, Massachusetts. And by any measure, that city has fallen short of what John Winthrop envisioned some 390 years ago. You give President Calvin Coolidge uh, a, re- a breath of fresh air. You I, I resurrect him, in other words. Yeah, and so how did that happen in your book? Well, it, it was an accident. Actually, I had been, not only had I been watching uh, The uh, Chosen, I also slipped in some some other things from uh, Amazon Prime, and I watched, and I've watched it now three or four times, one of my favorite new movies, Midnight in Paris, produced by Woody Allen in 2012. Allen. Yeah, it was, Owen Wilson was this character that found himself going back uh, to 1925, and I thought, gee, this is a pretty good year. I could take these people back to 1925. Uh, it was before the Depression. It was after World War I. Why not go to 1925? That's, how, that's sort of how I found that. Uh, time period. Uh, And then doing a little research, I discovered uh, that Calvin Coolidge was uh, so much like uh, John Adams uh, with his views on uh, that the Constitution was made, was written specifically for a moral and and religious people. I thought, I found my uh, one of my major characters here. And so, yeah, so Calvin Coolidge makes makes an appearance. We'll talk more about him uh, in a few minutes. Actually, now is a, a good time maybe to talk more about one of my very favorite presidents, the 30th president of the United States, who took over uh, the presidency at the untimely death of Warren G. Harding, who was having some problems of his own with the Teapot Dome scandal. Calvin, on the other hand, was a um, Christian believer who practiced what he preached and lived according to the dictates of his conscience. Yes, as I mentioned, uh, this book is a Christian fantasy, and anything can and does happen in the invitation to the Shining City. In fact, President Coolidge uh, does make a surprise appearance early in the book when our lead characters, Joy and Dana Kuntz, find themselves in an idyllic small town in 1925. Here they learn what Calvin Coolidge taught concurrently in 1925. Um, And uh, I make him um, a character that's coming to town. So he's alive. He isn't just um, someone reading uh, from a historical document of some kind. Here uh, they learn what he actually uh, campaigned on, namely that government rests on religion, that the claim to the right to freedom, the claim to the right to equality, 
with the resultant's right to self-government, the rule of the people, in other words, have no foundation other than the common brotherhood of man derived from the common fatherhood of God. That sounds like something Ezra Taft Benson would say, doesn't it? If this faith is set aside, Coolidge said, the foundation of our institutions fail, the citizen is deposed from his highest state, society reverts to a system of class and caste, and the government, instead of being imposed from reason from within, is imposed by force from without. Freedom and democracy would give way to despotism and slavery. I do not know of any adequate support from our form of government except that which comes from religion. That quotation came from a speech that President Calvin Coolidge gave in September 1924 to the Holy Name Society. And he adds a corollary, I think, to what John Adams said some, in his case, uh, 150 years earlier. So if I understand correctly, Greg, the invitation to the Shining City reminds the reader of the 1934 movie Lost Horizons, and yet you've woven a Christian theme throughout the book. Well, I hope so, and I hope the readers also appreciate that. But actually, in my research, I found that there are many myths and legends about lost or magical cities, and we describe a few of them on the back cover. Well, let's just read what's on the back cover. It says, In dozens of cultures throughout history and all around the world, there have been stories of magical places, special abodes where peace reigns and illness and death are non-existent. Places like Avalon, Arcadia, Lemuria, and the city of Enoch. People say they are just myths and legends, but when Joey and Dana Coons stumble onto such a place, they are met with ridicule and contempt in their attempt to return and take others with them. They need just one thing, an invitation, and so do true believers who want to join them. To qualify to return to this mythical place, not found on any map, where the people are of one heart and one mind and dwell in righteousness, they learn that they must leave everything and everyone behind. It's easier said than done. In fact, one of my reviewers makes note of that. Great. Well, we've got one right here, and it says, quote, not since the Left Behind book series has a novel juxtaposed religiosity against a society that seems to have lost its way. The invitation takes us on a ride to a place that stirs our imagination and taps into a yearning that all people of faith share. Just as James Hilton's Lost Horizon took us to Shangri-La, the invitation takes us to the shining city on a hill during an uncertain time of a contemporary cultural distress. And Jerry Johnston, former religion editor and columnist for the Deseret News, shared a similar theme in his review. He says, Years ago, a Brazilian rabble-rouser named Paulo Coelho 
saw the light and started writing spiritual novels. His gift for mixing the supernatural world and natural world in a startling new world uh, in time made him the best-selling author in the world. Gerard, perhaps unwittingly, has chosen to mine a similar vein with his novel, The Invitation to the Shining City, driven by punchy prose, spirited dialogue, and a reality-bending narrative the book engages in many ways, and the story, a kind of mind-melding pilgrim's progress, would almost surely intrigue the great Coelho himself. So, Greg, if listeners like what they've heard so far, tell us again where people can get the book. Actually, Jen, the easiest way is simply to go to the website, theshiningcity.org, and push the uh, buy the book button, and it'll take them right to Amazon. And at Amazon, they can choose either the paperback for sixteen ninety five or the ebook for seven ninety nine. And if they prefer, some people do not to do business with Amazon. You can get it from Barnes and Noble or BN dot com, and they'll ship it to you. And I. Tried that myself, and it came out really well, and they do a good print job. So at any rate, thank you for listening to this advertorial about the book. I don't have ads on any of the rest of the podcasts we have here, so uh, this is the first one that we've done that is, uh, I guess, uh, commercial in the last two or three years we've been doing these podcasts. So please forgive us. But I really think that the book will be enlightening, a good read, and give you some food for thought. This podcast has been a production of Latter-day Radio. For more information, visit the website at latterdayradio.com, or better yet, go to Spotify for instant access. Latter-day Radio is the originator of this faith-affirming podcast. If you like it or have comments or requests, send us an email at latterdayradio.com.